right, ma'am. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is the intro for episode 47. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about how organized religion came to the West and the idea that the majority of the content that carried forward into Christianity and all the sects of Western religion basically started through the Vatican. Not all of it, but the lion's share of it. Um, in the first hour, we talk more generally, but in the second hour, we get into things like the Jesuit order, um, all kinds of things that are more specific to the Vatican, the Saturnian ideas, and even get to a point where we begin to talk about how um, the secret societies encoded Christianity with the path of the sun, uh, Judaism was encoded by Saturn, and the idea that Islam was encoded with Venus. But I wanted to add into the intro a couple things that at least cover something of the Jesuit order because at most of it ended up falling after, after the first hour. Um, so I will read you a pretty interesting thing here, and I will also add very quickly a reiteration of episode, I think it was 23, uh, where I delved into the Masonic encoding of religion uh, starting at the Vatican. But anyhow, this was lifted probably originally um, from a book called Subterranean Rome by a guy named Carlos Didier. Uh, it was apparently translated from French and published in New York in, 19, in 1843. Um, I've looked around and I've found excerpts from it, but I can't seem to find the book itself. Um, but nonetheless, I did see uh, this attribution in a number of places. So apparently, what I'm about to read you relates to a Jesuit monk leaving the lower levels and reaching a command position. It's kind of a mouthful. But it's very interesting because, and in, in, you know, it, it's a bit like some of the Talmudic law, where it's just astounding um, in Talmudic law the things that are stated that can be done to a goy or a non-Jewish person. Um, really kind of shocking. But this is even more so in a way because they're not pulling any punches when it gets down to the oath part. But anyhow, I'll try. It, it, this is a mouthful, and the language is a little funny, so I'll try to read through it without butchering it too much. Anyhow, when a Jesuit monk of the rank is to be elevated to command, he is conducted into the chapel of the covenant of the order where there are only three persons present, the principal or superior standing in front of the altar. On either side stands a monk, one of whom holds a banner of yellow and white, which are papal colors, and the other black banner with daggers and a red cross above a skull and crossbones where the word NRI and below them the words, uh, I'm gonna do the best I can here, Eustum necar regis impius, the meaning of which is, it is just to exterminate or annihilate impious or heretical kings, governments, or rulers. Upon the floor is a red cross at which the postulant or candidate kneels. The superior hands him a small black crucifix, which he takes in his left hand and presses to his heart. And the superior at the same time presents to him a dagger, which he grasps by the blade and holds the point against his heart. The superior, still holding it by the hilt, then addresses the postulant. So I skip a little bit to get down to part of the, basically the oath the postulant is taking. And this is where, you know, it goes to show, man, listen to this. This is what the postulant is saying, apparently. I furthermore promise and declare that I will, when the opportunity present is present, Make and wage relentless war, secretly or openly, against all heretics, Protestants and liberals, as I am directed to do, to extirpate and exterminate them from the face of the whole earth. 
and that I will spare neither age, sex, or condition, and that I will hang, waste, boil, flay, strangle, and bury alive these infamous heretics, rip up the stomachs and wombs of their women, crush their infants' heads against walls in order to annihilate forever their execrable race, that when the same cannot be done openly, I will secretly use the poisoned cup, the strangulating cord, the steel of the poignard, or the leaden bullet, regardless of the honor, rank, dignity, or authority of a person or persons, whatever, be may their, con whatever their condition may be in life, either public or private, as I at any time may be directed to so do by any agent of the Pope or superior in the brotherhood of the holy faith of the Society of Jesus or basically the Jesuit order. Um, I mean, it's pretty shocking to, to see that these are actual oaths. And this is reiterated in a lot of places. I looked just to make sure that this didn't just come from one source of this book that was taken out of French um, and, and published in New York back in the day. Um, it's all over the place. And this is not the only account of what's going on with the Jesuit order. The reason I put this into play is we're going to be talking about whether the roots of the tree that provided basically the Western framework for religion are poison. And I would submit to you they are. We're talking about the Vatican here. And in episode 23, I took pains to demonstrate that they basically used a Masonic method of encoding the sun into Christian scriptures. And before we jump in with Jason, I'll just quickly go through the months to demonstrate that the saints from the Vatican, the Catholic saints, um, are in fact coding a month of the year, each of them, and it's really undeniable. You can, you can you know, reason it out astronomically. Uh, there's a number of ways, and I'll even show you a couple ways as I read through them. January is St. Peter or Aquarius, and this is kind of interesting because the Pope claims an unbroken line from St. Peter. Aquarius is the water bearer, the water sign. So much of the straw man identity, which are, is enforced by Saturnian judges, apparently sitting in for the Pope, um, is exercising this maritime law all to do with water. February is St. Judas Iscariot, and he is, of course, Pisces the Fishes, the fellow that betrayed his master and lost a day. Of course, he lost a day because it's the month of February. March is St. Andrew. This is where it gets interesting. The brother of Peter. Because formerly the year was reckoned to begin in March, which is St. Andrew that I'm talking about, there is equal honor given both. And Andrew is universally distinguished by his standing before the saltier cross, which is looks like the letter X and which is actually a goniometer. So let me explain this very quickly. We are told that Pope, I think it's Gregory the Thirteenth and Julius Caesar, if they were real people in the way we think they are, um, jacked up our calendar. They took the true first of the year from the vernal or spring equinox in March, and they jacked it back to January. Okay, so that's what's being mentioned here. St. Andrew, who was the old first of the year, is shown in statues at the Vatican and other places, standing in front of what's called a saltier cross, which is actually called a goniometer. What it is, is two compasses brought back to back, meant to measure the angle of the sun crossing the equator um, at the spring equinox. So you can see that relation, how it's been encoded. Um, April is Matthew or the Taurus, or the bull of the Zodiac, as you see in all representations of St. Matthew, with the bull's head at his foot. This is true of all the uh, 
the gospel saints. You can go look, what is it, the man, the eagle, the bull. It, it all relates to the zodiac, and it's been demonstrated endlessly. May is John the disciple with Jesus' love. June is Thomas or Didymus. And this is interesting because the word Didymus in Greek, of course, means twin, and Thomas is rising out of the twins, going into the sign of the crab. July is James the Greater, August is Judas the brother of James, September is James the Lesser, surnamed Oblia the Just, holding the Libra or the balance of justice, of course, at the fall equinox we have Libra the Scales. Here's another interesting one. October is Nathaniel, who Christ saw under a fig tree gathering the last remaining fruits of the year, and he was called by Philip. There's two things here. Of course he's gathering the last remaining fruits because it's October. Um, the harvest has happened. Almost everything that grows that could be harvested is done. So the last remaining fruits are in October. The fact that he's being called by Philip, Philip relating directly to the horse, is November. November was Philip, whose every name signifies lover of a horse, as you see in the characteristics in the sign of Sagittarius, which of the zodiac, which is represented half man, half horse. There's more there, but basically December is Simon the Canaanite. Um, if you go back to episode 23, I delve a bit more in this, but what's going on here is the Vatican basically did what I said at the beginning to associate the path of the sun with Christianity. Um, these saints are basically playing the part of the sun in any given month. And it goes on and on. Even in the scriptures, uh, from a Masonic point of view, anytime you see verily, verily referring to Christ, uh, any Mason would know that they're talking about the spring equinox because of the word verily, verily, which is the positive that might relate to something like the word yes, but basically comes from the word vernal or relates to the word vernal, which is the spring equinox. In the same way, in the scripture, if it is ever stated Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, from the Masonic point of view, they would instantly know if what was being referred to in that scripture was the vernal or spring equinox or the autumnal or fall equinox. Um, these things are demonstrated, and uh, in books like The Devil Pul Devil's Pulpit, where this is covered from the 1800s, a bit closer or far back before the modern edit, I went through and looked at the astronomical data and took a lot of time, and they're spot on with like the rising of the Virgin in the sky of the Zodiac, these kinds of things. But anyhow, I wanted to at least get that in there because most of what I just covered is talked about more in the second hour. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason and uh, and do this thing. Episode 48. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 48. I have Jason Lindgren with me, and this is going to be a very interesting episode. But I want to say a couple things before we get started. Um, many, many years ago, um, I realized that... Uh, how can I phrase this? I, people were, were challenging things that I held in my belief system, and it was upsetting me. And there came a point when I realized, why am I getting upset about this? And as time went on and I got a little bit older, what I truly realized is this is ego, what I consider to be the other, not me, um, driving this kind of mental mindset where I'm holding a thing as a belief not necessarily something I've researched or anything else, but something I have chosen to believe. And when it got challenged, I would actually get upset. And um, now that many years have gone by, I have tried, you know, vociferous, <laughs> yeah, just let it go. I have tried endlessly to reel myself in. Whenever I feel myself 
getting a rise inside because someone is challenging something, what I do now is I say to myself, I need to re-examine this and challenge it. And the reason I'm saying that is because I can feel myself becoming upset that something in me is is doesn't like that this is being challenged. And for me, every time it happens, I set everything aside as soon as I can, and I re-examine this thing, and I challenge it myself. And in many cases, many cases, um, I have pushed aside these tenets that I have hold is very likely true. But anyhow, we're going to talk about organized religion, Western religion, but more specifically, the tree that it came from, which is primarily the Vatican. So many Christians will be familiar with the teaching from the Bible um, that if you understand the fruits of a tree are poison, you understand the tree is poison. What we're going to do here is look at the Vatican as the roots of the tree and let people decide for themselves whether the roots of that tree are poisoned. Um, And the reason this is critical is because so much of the tradition, so much of the organized traditional religions and other things that we have in the West came straight through the Vatican. And while this is not 100% true, uh, when you begin to examine how much of it actually did start there, like the actual storylines, the ideas, the the so-called scriptures and other things, um, those did come through the Vatican first. And so we're going to examine the Vatican in great detail here. So many people, and this is going to tie into a future show, so many people are always commenting uh, and sending me messages asking me why the Vatican has such an interest in telescopes. They bring up the Lucifer, the so-called named Lucifer telescope, and other things. And I have actually read accounts um, that are that are claims, I don't know if they're wholly true, that almost all the major telescopes in the world uh, are influenced by the Vatican in one way, shape, or form. And again, I don't know if this is 100% true, but when they ask me about this, what I always say The reason they're doing it is because there is something to see. But I'm going to go into a little more detail here. We can draw the Saturnian lines to the Vatican all day long. You can go search YouTube and you will see any number of people drawing the Saturnian encoding into nearly every facet of the Vatican. What I did with the idea of Saturn is broke it down as simplistically as I could so that I could think about it in an uncomplex way. What Saturn basically means to me is chronology, chronos, it's time. And uh, I would point out, uh, George Orwell, who we're all familiar with, you know, I talk so much about Animal Farm 1984 and the Brave New World. Well, Orwell, the author of one of those books, uh, had a quote where he said, whoever controls the past controls the future. And this is going to play directly into what we're talking about here. To get back to Saturn for a second and chronology, Basically, modern chronology has two point, two parts, the calendar and the era. Um, and this does deviate in some places, but mostly that is agreed as, as, as true. Um, what we see from the Vatican is the rewriting of history. And in a future show, I will go at this because I firmly above a mind that I think it is very likely that the Dark Ages are the dividing line for where the modern rewriting of history began to occur, and whatever happened before that was basically erased from memory as much as possible. 
And by the way, I'll give you an example. We can see modern history being rewritten uh, by simply looking at 9-11 or Boston or Sandy Hooks or the Oklahoma City bombing. These are all false events that have shaped modern life and have been written into the historical record. And yet so many of us understand that these are completely fabricated nonsense events. And this is exactly what the Vatican has been up to since its inception, I guess. Before we jump in here, two more points. Uh, I'm also going to show again that the Vatican used its saints to encode the path of the sun. I covered this in an earlier episode that you can go back and look at. And Jason, I don't know, maybe you can look up the name of that while I'm finishing out here. Um, And I guess I'll just drop the last point. And actually, I'll jump into YouTube real quick and I'll look back and give you the name of that episode. All right, it's episode 23, titled Freemasonry and the Encoding of Religion with Astronomy and the Sun. It was uploaded September 14th, 2016. Anyhow, let's jump in to episode 48. Welcome aboard, Jason. Well, thank you very much. Great to be here as always. I think we need to make it abundantly clear, um, as I did in episode 23, this is not a direct run at anyone's religious beliefs. What this is, is pointing out things that seemingly need to be challenged by everyone who is affected by the topics we are covering. Um, Everyone has the absolute right to hold the religious beliefs they want, but um, as we jump in here, I hope that people, if they feel themselves getting upset, they will understand that's a sign that they need to re-examine whatever it is that's upsetting them and maybe challenge the ideas that are being brought up here. So anyhow, I'll just kick it right over to you, Jason. Let's jump in. Let's make it very clear that we're not here to denounce anyone's belief systems. That that's a personal thing, what you feel is right, and how, how you want to believe is completely up to you, and no one has the right to tell you anything. Uh, th- what this is, is a study on the historical creation of, and the ramifications from organized religion, and the social engineering aspects of it. And the intense, long-lasting impact it has on humankind from the earliest beginnings of what's supposed to be documented history until today. And... Um, we, of course, we can't forget that what is document history is not is uh, quite often debatable as well. Right. And, and there's going to be a future show where I get in to what I consider to be a completely fraudulent timeline where what we see uh, is basically characters changing their name, their costume, uh, the name of the peoples they belong to, the events just mirroring an event that's already occurred. There are people out there like Anatoly Flamenco um, who have gone at this, and a lot of people have badmouthed him, but I'll tell you what, over the past couple weeks, I have taken the time to go back and look for did. Um, And it's amazing to me. Uh, It's not like he set two events side by side and made the best call he could. He applied hard, cold mathematical science and statistics to huge numbers or parts of history. And he's not alone in what he found. The problem here is that the people who accept what is called the Scaligerian timeline, and we'll get into that, um, usually take time to defame these people. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. Right. Now, um, of course, as I said, there's a huge difference between having religion or a personal belief system that feels right to you and organized religion, which is a group of supposed like-minded individuals gathering together to practice an agreed-upon belief system, uh, which is usually led by one or multiple leaders. Uh, And especially when you get into larger systems, there's going to be a chain um, 
like a pyramid structure, very, very similar to a corporation. In fact, uh, too similar to a corporation, I might add. Right. And, and actually, you know, they, they actually are uh, in a way a corporation because they get their tax exemption um, handed to them. But this this idea of religious groups and even, you know, major religions around the world, um, if I had to venture a guess uh, what I have read the most in my life. I think it's probably the Bible. Um, I think I have studied that and read it more times than any other book that I've ever owned. But to put this into context, I got to a place where I started to think about, well, if the Baptist religion believes this and these other people believe this and the Catholics believe this and a lot of the things don't jive, who is right? And then I lifted it up a level um, and I said, well, if the Buddhists believe this and Islam believes this and the Western Christianity or Catholicism believes this and they don't jive, who is right? And I came to realize that it's a bit like the Mercator projection map that was on our walls, where if you take a Mercator projection and then go compare it to a Peters or a Gall Peters projection or any number of the projection maps we have, you will notice immediately that the land masses don't look the same. The land masses aren't the same size. And while with maps it was a bit easier for me because I just simply said, well, then none of them are right. How can, how can you trust any one of them is right when they're all different? But religion is a bit different, isn't it? Because it deals with the spiritual side of things. So as I began to study Buddhism and Hinduism and ancient Indian uh, texts like the Bhagavad Gita and um, other things, I started to look for the similarities. And oddly enough, I found a lot of similarities, even though on the surface there were so many differences. But anyhow, I just wanted to get that, get that ditty in there. Yeah, well, that's very important what you just said, because there's two points here. One is that um, there's a lot of retelling of the same of what's obviously the same story. And as you go back in time, you can see that some of these are just the same thing, and they redressed it, basically. And the second point is, uh, for a lot of the more uh, modern hell beliefs, there's multiple tellings of the same story. And both of these points are incredibly important, uh, because you're not getting an incredibly accurate prediction of what is supposed to be history. Right, and that's an important point. Um, because in many cases, there really is no denying that you are seeing the same story being retold with different names. But at the base of it, what it tells you is that whatever it is trying to communicate was important enough for so many different peoples, different countries, different languages, different religious beliefs, all had this inserted and all had a version of it that they were communicating to their populace. Um, and again, this, this is an important point to make. If we go through life looking for differences, which much of our modern existence is built on, trying to put us at odds. Well, you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican or vice versa, so we can't get along because we're looking for the differences. If we turn that on its head and look for the similarities, in my view, we find a lot more value going at it in that way. Right. Now, to get into this, um, and I'm, these are going to be generalizations. There's obviously going to be very specific things that uh, we're going to gloss over. But the earliest notions of what early religion is, it comes in the form of sun worship. Uh, I think the obvious reason being that it's this great big ball in the sky glowing away that you can see every day. Uh, what this breaks down to is the concept of light versus dark. 
And of course, that is the notion of every story, uh, movie, book, doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it, it comes down to the light versus the dark. If you don't have some sort of struggle between the light versus the dark, uh, it's pretty boring. You know, you're just kind of kind of yapping about nothing, right? Right. And again, um, if people go back to episode 23, um, you will see where I am actually demonstrating that the Vatican was encoding the path of the sun and tracking the sun as basically the main thing that it does. Um, and this, of course, sets aside the whole Saturnian idea. But this is all about the sky. And there is no getting away from the only true way we have to mark large periods of time in this world is through astronomy. And that's the fact. The fact is that the earliest reckonings of time were taken in this way, and there were priests or others who were basically astronomers who were marking when an eclipse happened, say, or a transit of Venus across the face of the sun. That would be the equivalent to marking maybe a week or a month in a much bigger calendar. And what they were doing is marking time. The question has always been, are there people here that know the true history that came before? And so the idea of cyclical time where things repeat, is that why it's being tracked? And I think that's quite likely. Or is there some other reason? But there is no getting away from that the Vatican has an obelisk from the, the city of Heliopolis in St. Peter's Square. Um, and it's all, you can go see the, the kind of uh, rose compass markings around it. It's about tracking the sun. And, and it, later on in the show, uh, I will reiterate again what they did with the saints, basically turning them in to what is called the genius of a month or the character of the sun the saint is playing. And this is what the Vatican did. All right. So to get back into the whole sun thing, humans were much safer in the warmth and the light and in much greater danger in the darkness because this is when the predator animals would be out hunting and of course they they would have a much harder time seeing them so other early forms of deity worship um besides the sun included various aspects of the masculine and the feminine which we find in old statues and idols and all those sorts of things and what this is this is direct anthropomorphism of uh, early man's spiritual views they're, they're taking what they see around them which of course is themselves and deifying it Right. Um, and, you know, this this is a hard thing for me to talk about um, because over the past, I don't know, six or seven months, I've been taking a very close look at Egypt um, and having gone through Fomenko stuff and the, the earlier research I did, um, supposing, is it possible that the Dark Ages mark a complete separation from whatever came before? And I would invite anyone to go look at things like... Uh, you know, the paintings on tomb walls in Egypt, the carving of stones, those things are not that old. I, I mean, get this. If I got the best paint, the best house paint I could get um, in the modern age, and I painted some hieroglyphics on a wall in my house, what would it look like in a thousand years? Even if that wall was stone, um, go back and re-examine these things. So some of this is hard for me to talk about because it almost wants to bleed into the other show where I'm going to try to demonstrate that our complete historical timeline is nothing more than a lie agreed upon. But anyhow. Well, these things do intertwine, so it's not necessarily that you're bleeding into the show. It's just the facts that seem to stand out are are there. It's, 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 it is what it is, you know? 
Yeah, there's no getting away from it. And the more I look at all these supposed ancient sites, um, we're struck with a couple of problems. Um, the people that were told were Stone Age could not have built those things with the technology we're told they had. But when you really begin to examine a lot of it, um, it's not old. You can tell by looking at it, it's not old. A lot of sarcophaguses and other things. Uh, and not only that, you know, remember the whole the Islamic Spring thing, and then we were told people went in, broke into the museum, and stole all these things from the museum. In my view, this is just more obscuring of a past they don't want us to know about. Um, they did the same thing in Iraq, remember? Um, for some reason, there was no security, and everyone went in where all the antiquities were, and supposedly these thugs stole all this important stuff out of the museum in Iraq. It's done over and over and over, and in my view, what you're looking at is the obscuring of a past they don't want us to know about, which was probably a much more peaceful, much more sensible way for human beings to live, and then trying to bolster the onset of the history we now think we understand that starts, I don't know, around the 1100s in the neighborhood of the Dark Ages, something like that. Right. Uh, by the way, I remember from mainstream news broadcasts of the time when they went into Iraq that when the United States Army got into Baghdad, they're the ones that made the beeline for the museums and the basements where all the stuff was kept. So make of that what you will. I do, I do remember that uh, for whatever, you know, whatever reason it was. Well, I mean, it's one thing to happen once, but there are examples of this happening over and over. And if I remember correctly, I didn't look this up before the show. I think there were even promises by the supposed military that they were going to be guarding these important places to ensure nothing happened or something like this. But at the end of the day, what do we see? We see a bunch of unknown looters go in and walk off with all these apparently very old items, which could potentially tell us something about a past we do not understand. Yeah, and let's not forget that Iraq is the location of the former Babylon, and, well, there's a lot of things tied into that, so. Of course. Anything that you can tie biblically uh, is is being heavily played on by the people in charge. And as we get into it, you know, we're going to start to make the comparison, um, or the—we're going to start to talk about the Jesuit order. And I'll take a moment to address that. So many people who are researchers today who have kind of woken up to the nonsense that is the modern era um, state that the Jesuits are running at all. And in the recent research that I've done, I can't argue with that. I think that the things that I have looked at make that quite feasible, that there was apparently, supposedly, a time when the Vatican was so power, powerful and in charge of so much of the spirituality of the world that they even issued canonical bulls that claimed even things we haven't discovered yet belong to us. And so the question becomes, did the Vatican have enough power and control to exert that over royal families? And I think they probably did. And even though in the modern era, we can pretty firmly point to the British royal house as being responsible for much of this, I would also point out the hidden hand in a thing is usually a hand you never see. And we see the British royal house all the time. So I think it's quite feasible that the British royal house may be very powerful and wealthy, but there is, again, a level behind them that is even pulling their strings. It's a hard thing to know. It is, but it seems likely that uh, they're at the top, well, one of the aspects of the top of the pyramid structure, you know, or the, uh, the, 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 the true capstone, if you will, of the pyramid. 
Right. They're, they're certainly getting there. Um, but I would point out again, the hidden hand is something we don't see. But there's other evidence that I've uncovered in the past couple of weeks while I'm going at this timeline issue that I want to cover in an upcoming show that demonstrates that a lot of these royal houses basically made up a fake history to authenticate their right to be ruling where they were. And of course, that kind of idea bolsters the idea that the, the royal families really do wield quite a bit of power. Right. Now to get back to the whole uh, early religion thing, uh, the solidification of religious practices is also directly proportional to the development of writing. And of course, this is all coming from mainstream history. And as we stated earlier, it's debatable, but we're going to go through it and then we'll, we'll see where things may have to be amended. Uh, this will lead, as time goes by, to the whole priesthood becoming the elite class. Uh, they could also be considered the keeper of the mysteries, the controller of knowledge over the masses, and, and this is probably where a lot of the whole secret societies things came from. Uh, state and religion were always connected in some way, going all the way back to what we can find. And this, of course, is something that continues until this day, although it's uh, not as obvious as it would have been hundreds of years ago. Right. And and this plays into the idea that um, our schooling, as an example, so many people have woken up to what our schooling actually is. And a lot of people question, well, how could that have come to be? Well, this is how it could come to be. When you have a priest class who are very well educated, probably speaking some of them, five, six, seven, eight languages, uh, in my recent studies, even Josephus um, spoke the big three or four of, of his day, um, and we can demonstrate that jo Josephus was rewriting history. So these ideas were brought to us by the priest class. At some point, people become more literate, and these ideas are already being inserted into the public consciousness. So there's really no getting away from uh, the power that the Vatican had, particularly if it is correct that there was a time when most of us were illiterate and these guys were speaking like handfuls of languages or better um, in, in that time. Right. And, and what, another interesting point to that is uh, knowledge definitely trickled out to the masses over the over the centuries. And when you get up to, the, say, the 1800s, early 1900s, you now start seeing that, hey, people are a little too smart here and, and too too learned. So then the dumbing down begins again. Yeah, that is a fantastic point. Uh, when I was in San Diego, um, I had been in some things to do with plants. And doing plants, you meet a lot of older folks. I had some friends that were in their 70s because they were big into plants. Um, some of these people were raised Catholic, and I was kind of astonished to understand that one guy who was a good friend of mine spoke Greek, Latin, Spanish, Italian, and English. And the majority of that was from his Catholic schooling, which he started in Puerto Rico. Um, and that's really when it became, you know, started to come home to me what has happened to the education system. And Jason's point is very valid. There's short couple, two, three generations ago, uh, it was quite common for people to be educated at a much more valuable le level in terms of what they could understand about the world, the languages they could speak, the texts they could read and this sort of thing. Well, there's a couple points I'm going to bring up here before we move on with this. Go look up uh, any school test from the late 1800s, uh, basically like a middle school, high school kind of level thing, and see what those people were required to know and understand compared to what's being done today. And second of all, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but cursive writing is 
I don't know if it's every school, but where I live, it's not being taught anymore. And this is completely and utterly appalling to me on every level. And um, that that nothing says more to me that something's being done on purpose than that. Right. It's it's a fantastic example, Jason. That means that if this, in fact, is going on, the next generation of people will become adults. And when they go back and look at things that were written in cursive, which was almost everything, they may not be able to read it very well. Um, it's a crazy thing. But on, on top of that, there's the whole idea of, say, in the 1800s, what was being taught as the liberal arts. Anyone can go look this up. Look up a, a thing called the Wooden Book Series, the Quadrivium. And look what they were calling liberal arts at the time. And look at what the quadrivium is putting forward. It is claimed that this was part of an upper crust real education at the time. And uh, you can really begin to see that that teaching is actually teaching you something about the world and the systems of the world. Um, It's an astounding thing. I would recommend everyone go check out the wooden books and the quadrivium and what was called liberal arts at the time and compare it to what, what we do now. Right, and, and, and this actually ties into uh, things that happen in religious history compared to uh, what they're doing now. Just like in the old days where everything was in Latin and the masses didn't speak Latin, well, you were subservient to the priest class who could read and write and speak all this. Uh, you just went to mass and you, you, you accepted it as, as it is what it is. And the same thing's being done here today. If they're taking cursive writing away and you have, say, Google encoding all the books, well you're at their mercy that what they're encoding is accurate to the original. And if they want to change something and you can't read the original document in the first place, well, guess what, man? Tough. Well, it's it's even a bit worse than that, Jason, because once they have digitized information, it is very easy, exceedingly easy to change what it means. Whereas those original documents or books written in cursive, not so easy to change that. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, if you were Google, who for many, many, many years, I think it was in the 90s when I first heard, not sure about that, that they had robots scanning books night and day, um, it, it would be very easy to key in with a single keystroke uh, if the system provided for that, the changing of this man was a murderer to this was a man, completely changing what was communicated in the original text. So, And, and I've talked before what it's going to mean when we see the last libraries close. Um, you know, when we get to a point where all information comes to us digitally, we are, in fact, at the mercy of corporations. Right. And that's exactly what I'm implying. Uh, it's always been said that these elites that we're, we're battling against are playing a very long game. So, you know, I can read cursive. Crow, you, I'm sure you can read cursive. But the 13-year-olds here, um, you know, the ones who are friends with my child, they can't read cursive, but she can. And they've even said, hey, what does this say? And she has to translate it for them. So think about this 20 years from now. This is just going to be – it's going to be bad. It's, it's, they're going to be at the mercy of, of these digital systems. So it is, it is the extreme dumbing down. And, you know, anyone could go look up how textbooks are made in the United States and where the place is that does that and how it's done. It's astounding to see the overarching control of what goes into textbooks and what is called school. In my view, it's not school at all. It's not teaching you anything of value about this world. No, it's training you how to be a a member of the system. But All right, moving on from that, I think that was very important to get in there. But um, another early aspect that develops in in all of this is the notion of a triune or three-part god. And we see this repeated in uh, multiple cultures. One of the earliest we have is in India. And this is coming from the Sanskrit, and it's called the 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but the Trimurti. And the three aspects are called Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer or transformer. Now, uh, what's in- interesting that stood out to me in this is uh, there's a statue of Shiva outside of CERN. And there, there's been rumors for quite a few years now that they perform rituals to Shiva, the destroyer, transformer here, uh, there. So make of that what you will. And when all three of these combine into a single entity, that avatar is known as Datatreya. And so here's the idea that gets played over and over and over. Um, in episode 23, I demonstrated how heavily the encoding of Masonic ideas, which are no different than any ancient society from a- anyone you can name, they all play back to things like Buddhism and Hinduism, and they're all basically the same all the way up to the Masonic tradition. Um, but what you see in, say, a Masonic Bible, if anyone's ever seen one, I think there there used to be a couple clips on uh, YouTube where someone had got their hands on a Masonic Bible. Instead of seeing, uh, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost idea uh, in those Masonic Bibles, you're looking at Osiris, Isis, and Horus. And so this is exactly what Jason is pointing out here. And so this bears scrutiny. Regardless of your religion, regardless of what you may choose to believe, this bears scrutiny. This triune deity has been replayed so many times that when I saw a recent list, I was even stunned. Um, it's it's almost unbelievable how many different supposed sectors of, of the chronology of our world and how many different cultures have had this idea. They have, and it's all over the world, too. There, there's a, a bunch from Ireland I didn't even get into, and... It, I don't know what exactly this comes from, but the triune God is absolutely uh, incredible. This is the aspect that that, that is leaned heavily upon. So uh, as you just mentioned, next up we have the, the figures from Egypt, and that is definitely what's drawn upon for later religions. Um, so we have Osiris, Isis, and Horus. These all seem to have been derived, though, from another earlier religion, which is from Babylon, with their triune, Baal, Ishtar, and Tammuz. And all these other gods and goddesses and all that, those uh, get used in other symbolism that's all through Western culture even today. We, we run into the same problem of, of, you know, in some of the research that I'm doing in the last two weeks, um, you've got people demonstrating mathematically that Sumer never existed and that so many of the other things that we think existed are actually just duplicates of another thing and then moved back further in antiquity than they actually occurred. Some of these people are claiming uh, that almost all the ancient history we, we think we know uh, happened in the Middle Ages. And while a lot of people can poo-poo that and make fun of it, I started to look at the mathematical and statistical methods that were used to, to, to get this information, and I think it holds water. Not only do I think it holds water, I think it's a shame that there aren't more people to, who are taking it seriously and trying to take it further. Um, but, you know, this is the problem. When we talk about Babylonia, I mean, are we talking about an ancient time? And for my money, I don't think we are, man depends upon what you define as ancient. Is it a thousand years or is it 5,000 years or is it 10,000 years? The problem is we don't actually know because not all these things are accurately uh, datable and, and people also argue about the the actual, even if they're they're thinking they're antiquity, they don't always get the, the, uh, the times right. And then there's, there's really no documented history, like actual 
people writing these things down. You know, it's it's they just didn't well, do it. Well, what I found is is really kind of upsetting. Um, so much of the stuff that came through the Catholic Church that the little monks were, you know, copying so that they could get the history out to the people. The original copies are always lost. As a matter of fact, it is claimed that the Gospels originally came to us in Greek. Um, there is a whole very convincing argument out there that the the Gospels were written in Latin. And that what they did was manufacture the idea that it was written in Greek. And, of course, there's a no original document. And they had a list of all the original documents that were lost in these spontaneous fires. And it bears – I mean, I'm incredulous. There's just no way that that many fires could have taken out that many original documents. And at the base of it, there's the Vatican and its scribes uh, rewriting history for my money. And the other problem is we know that the Vatican – has vast amounts of documents that they're they just don't allow you access to so who knows what they may actually know but they're never going to tell you yeah you know that that actually came up in the research i'm doing now and there were people who, who were saying there must be mile after mile after mile in the catacombs down there and there were even some people claiming that when they asked permission to go do research um they were denied entry uh solely because they weren't Catholic. And I thought, come on, that can't be right, can it? Um, is that actually true? I, I got to take a closer look at that. I want to find out if like someone from China was ever turned away from the Vatican because they weren't Catholic. But anyhow, um, these claims are being made. Well, when I looked it up, what I found was they will allow certain researchers into the archives. However, you have to be specific about what you're looking for. You can't say, I want to look into astrotheology more. You have to say, I want this document written by this person, found at this time, from this place. You have to be absolutely specific, and if they have it, then perhaps they'll grant you permission. You cannot, that you will not be given permission to just go peruse the archives like it's a library. So this starts to show that the roots of the tree are poison. Um, in what construct does an organization like that have the right to own and control so much of human history? How is it possible that all these people in this world, nobody knows how long we've been here, nobody knows how we got here, nobody knows for the most part, what we're supposed to be doing. And yet we have this organization who apparently has so much, the, the largest wealth of human historical knowledge. And yet, from what I read, some of it's not even on the table. Massive portions of what they hold cannot even be requested to be reviewed. And so this begins to demonstrate that the roots of the tree that is the Vatican are poison. Yeah, I mean, if the, what it basically comes down to is if they're not allowing you access to it, what the heck are you hiding? You know, I mean, you would think reality, <laughs> right? If it, you would think if you've got all these things, you would want to add to the sum total of knowledge for all of humanity. And you actually see the exact opposite of this. <laughs> hey, I don't know. I can make a ton of jokes like you go down there and find the original blueprints for the Matrix or something. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's unconscionable that um, information of this kind can be solely held. And it tells you something else about historical events. Look at suppose Napoleon. We're told Napoleon basically took over the Vatican, could have done anything he wanted with it. Um, and yet all that information is still hidden where it ever was. How can that be? 
you're looking at people that are complicit in the same game, in my view. And again, Napoleon is supposedly the guy, if he ever existed, who claimed history or stated history is a lie agreed upon. Um, truer words were never spoken, in my view. Well, I, I would I would su suppose that Napoleon is yet another uh, figure that if he is as mainstream history depicts him, that he was funded and pushed to do the things he did by the powers that be, which, of course, ties right back to the Vatican again. So, yes, while we have this enigmatic figure out there, he's probably just doing what he's been told, you know, and, and it's always been about solidifying the world power. And what did he do? He almost took over all of Europe. Well, he also plays into the idea of what Egypt is heavily. Um, you know, there was one point where the story used to be, oh, the Sphinx nose got shot off by Napoleon's guys. Yeah target practicing and all this other nonsense. So here you have another one of these seemingly royal controllers um, into Egypt doing whatever the hell they want and shaping the narrative and, you know, I guess hiding or not hiding the things that they want us to see or don't want us to see. And I would remind everyone, you know, that on Napoleon's crest, what is it? He's got like three bees or something. Whenever you see the bees, you're looking at a creature that has a queen, the manufacturer's royal jeller. You can see the encoding. It's, it's like Sting, the artist Sting. You know, the whole story you're told, well, I was nicknamed that because I wore a, a sweater that was black and yellow or something. And some guy said, you look like a bumblebee, so we'll call you Sting. And it <laughs> stuck. Nonsense. It's all nonsense. Um, and, and I'm not going to get into that right now. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, well, there's there's ties with, with Sting and uh, Stuart Copeland, all them that, that gets into the whole Laurel Canyon thing again. You know, that there's all those ties. But uh, anyway, that's a that's a story for another time, and we well, already touched on a little bit. Actually, but before you go, you know, Sting himself tells a story or told a story on uh, what's that that British show that's on late at night? I can't remember the name of it. It's real popular, Graham and they Norton. had yeah, Graham Norton, and Sting goes on there to tell how he was stung on the crown of his head and the exquisite pain. Then he launches into a story how he grew up in a shipyard and he. New. The only thing we can do here is this nasty work, and I'm not going to do this. And one day the queen came to town, and as the limo went by, they locked eyes, and lo and behold, Sting knew he was worth going to be doing something more. I mean, it is all nonsense. We see these people for who they are now, or we're beginning to. Well, that's just another retelling of the rags to riches story. <laughs> yeah, with a queen and a sting. Mm-hmm. On there the crown you. of your head. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same, Come man. On. Nothing new under the sun. I, I really like that phrase <laughs> because it, it it holds so much uh, connotation beyond what it, what it says just in words. So Yeah, I don't know, man. He, he either needs to put on purple when he tells that story or let someone punch him in the eye. we got to get purple from somewhere. Mm, yeah, exactly. Uh, to finish up the whole concept of the triune, of course, we have the, the, the currently held and worshipped triune, God, which is the notion of the Christian Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they even get the whole masculine-feminine in there with uh, the concept of the Virgin Mary, which is derived from, of course, earlier uh, gods and goddesses. The, the, the notion of a virgin birth is repeated over and over and over again, going way back into other religions. Yeah, I think it's over 50 times. I recently saw a list, and just to get it straight, um, you know, the Catholic Church is still heavily invested in the idea of Mary. As I mentioned before, I've read the Bible a lot of times. I think Jesus' mother Mary is mentioned in like two sentences, and don't quote me, that's not exactly right. My point here is that she is hardly mentioned at all in the Bible. What you are looking at in the Vatican use, Vatican's use of the mother Mary, or, or even a place like Notre Dame, Dom meaning dame, um, you're looking at the encoding of ISIS, of course.
Yeah, it, it's always uh, I, I was I was not raised Catholic. I was uh, raised Methodist, but I don't uh, subscribe to anything now um, beyond a loose spirituality. But it, it always stuck out in my mind that. Why Why are the Catholics all obsessed with all these figures? You know, it's like if you're a Christian, then the uh, primary figure, of course, is Christ. And, you know, the, of course, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why are they obsessed on these other figures? And they do. They, they absolutely uh, deify all these other human beings. Now, I could kind of understand the person who's supposed to have been given, who gave birth to the Messiah, but the Catholic Church just deifies all these people with these giant long lists of saints and all this, and uh, I don't know, I just never got it. Well, there's there's a reason for that. Let me address that real quick. You know, the, the book itself tells you don't worship idols. Right. But when we go into the church, what do we see? Well, there's an idol, a statue of Mother Mary, Isis encoded. But you see, when you go to the Vatican, there are statues of saints and personages all over the place. What's going on is the very reason you're told not to worship idols is because what they're doing with them. It's like with the one hand, they're telling you the truth. And with the other hand, they're doing their black magic shenanigans. All those statues are encoding and allegorizing an alternative meaning, which very few people are aware of. And yet so many people are following the belief system. It's a bit like the straw man, right? So we're all born. We're all turned into a corporation. No one tells us this. And yet we're participating in the very system that is creating this issue. Um, It's really no different. Uh, It's a trap. In a way, it's a trap being set that the average person really doesn't have much hope ever of understanding, not without the help of other people who understand a little more. Um, And I always have a problem with that. In my view, it's kind of like that bear trap that's set that no one could possibly know is there. While it's not doesn't quite rise to that level, um, it sure is well hidden. And on top of that, the system is teaching us to trust the system and authority and all this, further obscuring these truths. But I would point out, the book itself tells us, do not worship idols. And when you walk into these religious institutions, what do you see in almost all of them? An idol being worshipped. Yeah, and then you mentioned the straw man thing again. None of these religions teach you anything about reality. I mean, it's it's literally just there to kind of placate you, really. It gives you a very small set of belief systems, and that's it. It's pounded into you from day one because, of course, parents are going to take their children to church, and uh, I can go on a very long... Well, I, 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 guess, I, I guess I would add something to that, Jason. Um, the idea of, of even like the Ten Commandments, you know, don't kill, don't murder. Well, that's a good thing for people to be taught. Um, there are ideals... And they have become less over time. As an example, the idea of meditation, that's another great thing for people to get control of their minds, to overcome their egos, these kinds of things, to become higher as a human being. In the, in the Christian tradition, early on, there was all kinds of meditation, the idea of monks in cells, these vows of silence. What do you think they're talking about there? They're talking about the Western form of mind sciences furthering your mind, hiring it as a human being. And while I agree mostly with what you said, I would point out, and having read the Bible enough times, there are a lot of things in that book that if you followed them throughout your life, you would only benefit treating another as you would treat yourself, not murdering, not stealing, not coveting other people's possessions. These are important lessons. So I guess I would just add that, but there's no getting away from all the stuff that's piled around it. Right, and that's I was actually going to get to that. The earliest notions of these things were just how to be in a civilized society. 
you know, don't murder, don't covet your, your neighbor's wife, all those kinds of things. Well, those are just basic tenets of, uh, you know, don't be a jerk, you know, just everybody could be cool to each other and we'll all get along better. And this works with the notion of early societies getting together and not having war amongst themselves. And that makes perfect sense to me. You know, it's like, obviously, you wanted to lay down early foundations of, I guess you could call them laws, you know, just everybody needs to get along so that we can build for a better world for all of us. That makes perfect sense. But then you have all this other stuff that's just wrapped all around it. And however long it's been, whether it's centuries or thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years, we we really don't know exactly. Um, it's just turned into these great big mythological stories that, you know, it's it's just like watching Star Wars. There's all these characters all over the place doing all these crazy things. Right. And, and part of the problem here, um, and I've seen it a lot recently in the research that I've done, where the claim is being made that in many of the scriptures, particularly in Western scriptures, if you just rely on a surface reading, it's not really helpful to you. If you delve deeper and try to understand what is being encoded and allegorized from the human body to the idea of astronomy to any of these other things, even on a spiritual level where you're learning to conduct yourself in ways that will make you a higher human being, um, the problem here is, is that when you walk into the average church, all you ever get is the surface reading. And the real problem here is the very likely that the man up in front who's supposed to know doesn't even understand because, as I pointed out in episode 23, a lot of this is encoded Masonic stuff. In other words, if you were not trained to understand what it said from a Masonic point of view, you couldn't do it. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say the entire book of Hebrews was written by a Mason for Masons. The language is all there. It's, you know, I've said in that episode, I break down what the words Christian, Israelite, Jew, and Hebrew actually started as. They were levels of initiation in the Masonic tradition. And once you got up to Hebrew, you were approaching the Royal Arch degrees. I've forgotten exactly how it breaks down. But when you go into the book of Hebrews and begin to look at the language, it's straight out of a lodge, man, one-to-one. Well, the the basic, the quickie version of, of the whole Masonic thing is your, your first degree is your entered apprentice, and then there's three degrees. Once you reach that third degree, you are considered a master mason. You're in your blue lodge. So most people stop right there. But if you wish to continue and go further, then there's two branches you could go into, the York Rite and the Scottish Rite. And a lot of the crazier stuff seems to be in the Scottish Rite. Uh, that's where you start getting into the whole 33rd degree and all that stuff. And that's something we can get into later when we get to that part. Well, the claim was made in the research I did for episode 23 that the only three people who were above the Royal Arch degree in in uh, England was apparently the king, a guy named Carlisle, and I think it was the Duke of Sussex. So all the other Masons... It, what it, you know what it basically came down to as as I was looking at this? It basically meant that the top three guys were told a thing that everyone below them was lied about. And not just lied about, but whole portions of what they were being shown was the lie they were supposed to rely on as they supposedly got to you know these higher degrees where the truth finally became unveiled. But the truth is, there were only three dudes at that level, and one of them was a king. So what are the odds any of those lower Masons who were being lied to were ever going to reach a level where, they, where the lies would stop? And in my view, that time would never come. They were basically just being used. Right. Now, that, now what I've come up with when I've done uh, tried to cross-reference a bunch of the higher levels of the Scottish, uh, Scottish Rite, at the 30th 
degree is where you find out about the whole Lucifer illumination knowledge thing. Like you, you find out that all those blood oaths that you've been swearing since the first degree, well, who you've been swearing them to is Lucifer. Lucifer, of course, meaning the light bearer, light bringer. And this is where the whole, uh, you know, they, they're the holders of the knowledge and all that stuff. That's where that all gets wrapped up in. And when you get to the 32nd degree, that's pretty much where you stop. Um, if you want to become a Shriner, you have to at least be a 32nd degree Freemason, mean, meaning you know all this stuff about Lucifer and all that. So make of that what you will. <laughs> it's very interesting. And, it, you know, it sheds more light. You know, so many people ask me, why did the Vatican name the, the telescope Lucifer? Well, a telescope is a light bucket. It collects light. So, you know, Lucifer, in their view, is the light bringer. And what's really ironic about the idea of Lucifer at that level is it doesn't resemble any biblical kind of devil Satan text at all. That's not what they're teaching. They're teaching yeah. something wholly different. And it, while it does relate, um, it's a whole other thing, apparently. It is. As soon as I first found out about the whole Lucifer telescope, I was like, well, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, you know, because I know what that word means. That's what I thought, too. Yeah. yeah. And then there's one other little little ditty about Lucifer I'll throw out there for everyone. In the in the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey, they don't mention this in the movie from what I recall. But in the novel, when the monoliths uh, coalesce together and ignite Jupiter, um, it was taken from Saturn. That's right. And turned into Jupiter. Jupiter ignites into a second star in this story. And what they call it is Lucifer, and the name of the chapter in that book is actually Lucifer Rising. So there's this new light in the sky. So the black cubes come together and create the new light. So, folks, I think you know enough out there that you can put the symbolism together. And in the original kind of novel version, isn't the uh, the obelisk that comes down, isn't it called like the Overlord or something like that? Uh, I don't remember that. The, the thing I always like to point out that a lot of people forget because a lot of people just don't read anymore is that they went to Saturn in the novel and it was changed for the movie. And I, I just think that is incredibly important, very telling. Uh, I, I, don't, I have a hard right. time believing that the excuse that they couldn't make the special effects work, um, I don't buy it. Black Cube and Saturn go hand in hand and that's what the monolith is. And I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. Um, Make of it what you will, though. I mean, there's no there's no smoking gun to to say that Kubrick changed it because he didn't want the symbol, or maybe he was ordered to change it because the symbolism was too direct, or if the truth is with the special effects department, because the special effects in that movie are fantastic for the time. Well, it starts to show what 9-11 was about, too. Um, you know, what you're talking about directly goes into Ground Zero. Uh, so few are aware that there is a, is it a Hilton? I think it's a Hilton hotel that is actually built and stated as such to be the black monolith from 2001. So here you have the overlord from the original story sent from Saturn, Kronos, time, to witness, and in the original book, you know, the new star is called Lucifer, the Lightbringer, and it's all sitting there witnessing what's going on at the uh, the altar uh, with the two pillars, of course, uh, that that the towers were. Um, it, it's It's all the same story, and it all ties into exactly what we're talking about here, because as far as we can tell, the Vatican is one of the earliest sources for this idea, for lack of a better descriptive term. And I, I kind of want to get this out here since we're um, coming to the, the close of hour one. 2001 A Space Odyssey seems to be encoding by elites and more to the point for elites. And it, it's kind of telling the history of how they kind of see things, the whole mystery Babylon religion, how that 
Lucifer gave the knowledge to primitive man, and from that point on, um, they they became enlightened. They, they it's, it's played out in the movie where the head of the one tribe of the of the apes in the beginning. There's two tribes, and after he touches the monolith, he is granted the knowledge to use the bone as a club, and he takes over. And after he takes over, he throws the bone in the air. And then we skip all the rest of the history of humanity all the way up to 2001, where what are they doing? They're going to find the next monolith on the moon. So it's kind of a telling uh, of like that was the first high priest of Babylon. Right. You know, it's uh, – well, I don't, I don't know if we should get into it too, too much here, Jason, but the, there is no getting away from it. People got to realize that that story was made and very likely – putting in place the technology that allowed them to fake the moonshot um, in terms of the film they were going to produce to show people. Um, so it is all wrapped up in space where we get, you know, the sky, where we get time. The idea of Saturn, Kronos, which in, in the movie is hidden uh, as Jupiter instead of the Saturn that was originally told. The black monolith, which I believe was called the Overlord. These ideas are all streaming all the way back to the Vatican. There's no getting away from it. And, you know, I've stated on a few occasions, as far as I can tell, the view of Lucifer um, that would be shared in their circles goes something like this. It's, it's, You know what it is? It's basically the story of Prometheus. Anyone can go look up the story of Prometheus where he gave man fire and the gods got pissed off. And I forget that they tied him to a rock and let an eagle eat his liver or something as his punishment. I forget. But to get back over to the Lucifer idea— these people, I think, as far as I can tell, view it in this way. God did this horrible thing to people. Lucifer stood up at great risk to himself for all of humankind, and he paid a heavy, heavy price for it, so he's a hero. As far as I can tell, that is the story of Lucifer that they hold in mind. But anyhow, do we want to get a little bit more in here, Jason? We've got about five minutes to the top of the hour. Well, the, the other part that comes along with once we were into the whole Osirian um, mythos is that's also where Freemasonry was originally supposed to come from. And what we can do to kind of tie this together into modern era is that a lot of this Egyptian symbolism is still in use today and how we know that the founding fathers even were were a high level of Freemasons because we have obelisks. And what is an obelisk? Obelisk is representative of the phallus of Osiris, the one part after he was chopped up that Isis couldn't find. Uh, so she created a golden phallus to to put him back together and resurrect him. And from that, we get an immaculate conception uh, because Osiris was dead for the creation of Ho uh, Horus. So all these all these things are repeated over and over again, just like we have the city of Memphis. Well, Memphis is from Egypt. That's right. You know, not it's not just a city in, in Tennessee. So we see these things repeated over and over and over again. And um, this, the extreme significance of the Egyptian symbology uh, it can't be understated. It's it's very important. It's everywhere, and it certainly has significance. And I think it all ties into the whole Freemasonic thing. Yeah, I do too. And in some ways, I will not be surprised if I find that the Egyptian idea, which is nowhere near as old as they're pushing, um, is actually demonstrating where the modern false history is going to be archetyped from. Um, it's a hard thing to know. But anyhow, we're near the top of the first hour. In the second hour, uh, I may open up by taking the 12 saints most people are familiar with and demonstrating that the Vatican had assigned them months, which is directly related to the path of the sun through the acceptable year of the Lord. What I just said there cannot be understated. People should go look up what the acceptable year of the Lord is. 
it's used heavily in Freemasonry, and it's used heavily in what the Vatican did. Um, I'm going to take these 12 saints. I'm going to demonstrate that they are basically impersonating the sun in the month they are assigned, even showing that the modern first of the year in January is the brother of the old first of the year in March because they're afforded this equal reverence in a way. And then I'm going to go on to take a random saint out of the Bible. I think I'll use Judas Iscariot and demonstrate the unreconcilable differences in the stories being told from Gospels to Acts to all these other things. I mean, it, it really cannot be re reconciled. And there's a bearing here. There's a reason for all this. Jason, anything you want to add before we jump over to the second hour? Well, in the second hour, we're going to get into what a lot of people are probably familiar with, the astro-theological encoding of all these religions, uh, talk a little bit more about Freemasonry, Manly P. Hall, and just we're going to try and tie all this together so you can see that however long history uh, in Western civilization really is, it doesn't matter in the fact that it's all tied back to pretty much all the same stuff. Right. Uh, and in the same way, and I will maintain this, I think, till I drop, unless some fantastic information comes my way, Freemasonry and the secret rites they supposedly possess all root back to Buddhism, Hinduism, these ancient Eastern, whatever you would call them, and if you go back to the Bacchus rites or any of these other things, the Elysian mysteries, they are all the same thing moving through time, being repackaged, and quite likely as time has gone on, being slightly diluted over time. In other words, maybe not as knowledgeable or potent as the first versions of these things that they keep replicating. Um, anyhow, that brings us to the top of the first hour. Uh, this has been Crow Triple Seven Radio episode 48. That's the end of hour one. I hope to see you all over at Crow Triple Seven Radio for part two. It's provided for members there. The new website probably will launch this month. Anyhow, there it is. Cheers. Cheers.